0: I'm going to ask a question where I want some real feedback So I want you to raise your hand But give me five things that doctors do Tell me five things that doctors do Just give me one of them and another person can give me another and whatnot Uh, By raising hands, yeah, I'm going to go They diagnose, okay What else do they do? They examine examine. What else do they do? They write prescriptions What else do they do? They ask you questions What else do they do? they overcharge. All right. <laughs> With apologies to any doctor in here or insurance uh, person. Uh, okay. That's five things. How about this? What are five things that doctors say? What kinds of things do doctors say? Take two aspirin. Take two aspirin. All right. Rest. What's, going on? What's going on? Yeah. Like a, an, an opening question. What rest? rest. Yeah. What else? How can, How can I help you? Okay. We hope our doctor would say that. That's a great, that's a great line. One more. They yeah, offer treatment, okay? So they give they give uh, they give advice, kinds of things. Okay, good. Opening your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. That's where we are this morning. Luke is writing about Jesus as a family physician, so his personality comes through the Gospel of Luke. He is a doctor writing. Think about this: writing about the good doctor, the best doctor, the one who came. Jesus said to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is on a rescue mission for the sick, and he came to heal them eternally. I told my daughter this last week, I said to my five-year-old, I said, you have a, you have a doctor's appointment tomorrow. And you know what she said to me? She looked at me and she said, is it going to be owie? And I said, I don't know. Like, all I knew is our shared calendar said that my wife was taking my daughter to the doctor next week. But isn't that really what we want to know about the doctor? We don't mind going to the doctor. We want to know if it's going to be an alley or not. I was warned going to the doctor. Today, you get a shot. And so I would stress that. That would feel fearful to me. Um, our biggest concern with going to the doctor is that there would be an alley. Now think about this, why on earth would we go somewhere where we know we are going to get an owie? Let me have the children answer this. We're going to a place that we know is going to be owie, and our parents are okay with us. In fact, they're complicit in the crime. They are driving us to the place where we know it's going to be owie. Any thoughts, those without a driver's license, any thoughts on why we would go to a place to get an owie? Why would we do that at a doctor? What do you think? Don't be shy. Where's my Eli? My Eli wouldn't be shy. He's out handing out bulletins. We need him in the room. Okay, those of you in high school or below, you can have a driver's license. Why would you go to a doctor knowing you're going to get an owie? Why is that a good thing? I didn't, I didn't think this would stop. All right, this is open to anyone. This is an open question. Out. It's an all play. We're going all play with this. No pain, no what? No pain. no pain, no gain, says the athlete David. What does that even mean? Okay, so sometimes in life, some owie is required, right? What about phrasing it this way? Maybe we go for an owie now to prevent a longer-lasting owie later or a more painful owie later, okay? He didn't want to use owie language because he's way too cool for that, but, but he's, he's tracking with me. I think, that's a, I think that's a good way of saying it. No, sometimes there's no, there's no gain without the, the initial pain, right? And so just like it is with our physical body, there's so many spiritual parallels to nature. We just sang, we were just led in singing and thinking about nature and seeing God's actual personality in there, his vastness in there, his individual attention in there. And so it is when we see our natural body, our natural process, um, that there's so many tie-ins spiritually. Today is really part two of a sermon I call Doctor's Note. And, um, and what it is, is this idea of, instead of a, instead of a doctor's note, doctors write all kinds of things. They write on charts, they write prescriptions, they write doctor's notes, they sign off on, on documents that you've had your physical, those kinds of things. Um, but this is not a doctor's note to get you out of P.E. Uh, this is a doctor's note to sort of lift you out of these soul-killing ruts that we can find ourselves in. We just find ourselves in these places doing these kinds of things that are slowly killing us over time. We're looking at four sicknesses that the earliest followers of Jesus got wrong, and it's still happening today. Disciples today struggle with the same things the disciples of Jesus' era struggled with. Um, the central truth is on your paper. It's that Jesus not only diagnoses the sickness, so that's one of the things doctors do. They examine us and they diagnose the sickness, uh, but Jesus also prescribes the cure. We went over some, uh, some definitions last week to kind of get a sense of this. The four common problems that we're looking at with the people of God, I would say that those inside the church recognize as a problem, as well as those outside the church. I hope you can call to mind discussions you've had with people about why they aren't at your church, about why they aren't Christians. What that means is, that translates that you're opening your mouth and being a, just a, a witness To the things of God. If you open your mouth in our city about the things of God, you will get pushback. You will have conversations. You may even have eggs thrown at you, right? People will sometimes like, like not, not enjoy what's being talked about. But I hope you're engaged in that. I think what you'll see in this passage is these four things we're looking at, these four sicknesses that Jesus is, that that Jesus diagnoses are very similar things that, that keep people at bay from your invite to coming to church. So they might say, I'm glad you're excited about your church. Thank you very much for inviting me. I receive that as a friendship thing. But I don't, I don't go to church because. And I think some of these things come up. So last week we looked at the first two. This week we're going to look at the next two. Number one is ineffective ministry. It's just irrelevant. I don't see real change going on. They may have said something like this. I've tried church and it didn't really work for me. Another one is uh, is that they're not listening to Jesus' words. They may be preaching Jesus' words, but they don't really follow Jesus' words. If I found a church that actually lived and believed Jesus' words, I think I might try church again. That's a roadblock for people. The two we're going to look at today are this. There's a lot of pride and politics within the local church. Ever hear that one? Yeah. Ever see that? Yeah. There's a lot of pride in local churches, and there's a lot of lack of grace spilling out to other local churches. In other words, there's rivalry and tribalism with other Christian institutions and other churches. Those are the two that we will look at. These are symptoms that Jesus speaks to in his first followers. They are clear signs of brokenness that God can heal. Now I have in my pocket here something that sometimes you see doctors do. Uh, They pull out gloves and they put on gloves like this. Um, and when you see a doctor, they always do that in the movies. I'm not sure why, but I'm going to do it. Um, when you see a doctor putting gloves on like this, and if you've had any kind of medical training, um, then, then you know that they are putting these on for a couple of reasons. One is this. They are protecting themselves from you, the patient. They don't want to get what you might have, so they use gloves, now, I'm just going to ask, um, Maureen, would you just open up your mouth for a second? I'm kidding. I won't do it. Um, if you If you have someone coming at you, the doctor is trying to keep him or herself at bay from you, right? But also, they are protecting you, the patient, from them. Why? Because they have disease. They have uncleanness. Here's something really powerful about Jesus. Jesus didn't use these. Now, I know because they weren't invented yet, but I mean, metaphorically, Jesus doesn't use gloves. You know why? He doesn't need them. When Jesus comes in contact with sickness, do you know what happens? The sickness goes away. The doctor doesn't get sick. When Jesus comes uh, in contact with those who are filthy, he doesn't take on their filthiness. He provides cleanness. And you know what? He doesn't need protection from you. So it's a powerful thought that Jesus gets up close and personal with us and does so, I mean, his very presence on the earth is proof positive that he's not protecting himself from us. He is not keeping himself. In fact, that's one of the markers. Isn't that one of the markers of Jesus, that he walked, talked, touched lepers? So to see Jesus in action um, is to see God being up close and personal with us. Here's the next sickness, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, is pride and infighting. It says, an argument arose among them. We're talking about the disciples here, the first followers of Jesus. An argument arose among them as to which was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now we won't go back and do this, but if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. But in the context flow of this, you know what just happened? Jesus just pulled his disciples apart from the wowed crowd, and he began to tell them Jesus myself I am about to be betrayed at the hands of men but it says they don't understand what he was talking about in fact they didn't want to hear it for fear they didn't ask him what he meant so Jesus is about to is telling him about his impending doom and in the flow of that they begin to argue amongst themselves about who's better This is a massive disconnect and what this little what this little few sentences here shows is this It's a little peek inside of the heart mind and soul of the followers of jesus christ It's a peek into their heart. You know what they are concerned about. They're concerned about themselves They are not concerned about other people. They're not concerned about jesus secondly It seems to indicate they're more in tune with the popular culture, the popular thought about Jesus and what a Messiah would do, be, and say rather than being in tune with Jesus himself. The popular thought amongst the days that Jesus would not go be betrayed at the hands of sinners. That the Messiah would actually go to Jerusalem and throw the smackdown down and it would, it would come and basically set up rule over the Romans. So they were already jockeying for position. I wonder how much power I'll have. I wonder what I'll get to rule over. That's where their head was at. I love how honest the scriptures are. Don't raise your hands, but you'll find yourself far more in tune with your own selfishness, needs, discomforts, dislikes, and violations of of your name versus being in tune with Jesus. Do you ever find yourself more caught up in the popular discussion about Jesus rather than what Jesus directly is saying about himself? I do. And to see it in the first disciples who had direct access to Jesus in the flesh actually gives me great hope because I know how their story ends. So I know God's not done with them. I know God's not done with me. Jesus uses an object lesson by putting a child Next to him now when I was your age children, I would sit in church and I would sometimes not be tracking I would often not be tracking with what was being said. I had a children's bible with pictures in it That served me really well I remember flipping through my bible and I would like sort of look at these cool, you know Late 70s illustrations of of different bible stories and one of the pictures I remember very clearly was jesus with children all around him And that picture really interested me because I was a child. I was one of those children And so here's Jesus welcoming children. And I want to just tell you guys, a little quick aside, is that when thinking about children, right now, today, in our culture, and in different times in history, children have both been elevated to first place and relegated to last place. So in our own country, children at one time were just dismissed as future human beings. They were ignored. They were not taken into account. Children should be seen and not heard. I mean, that's where children held. That's the place they held in our country for a long time. It's not that way anymore. They've they've risen the ranks, right? Youth is actually kind of worshipped and, and children often sort of dominate things. But in other parts of the world right now, children are last place. Certainly in Jesus' culture, children were not thought of. They were not part of the equation. They weren't, they weren't um, brought, brought into the limelight of things. Some people today serve their children like royalty. They revolve their world around their children. And some neglect their children. Others do wicked things and take advantage of children. So there's this broad spectrum. Let me say this. The Bible is clear about some things. The Bible is clear that kids are neither gods to be worshipped, nor are they future humans that we one day should pay attention to. The Bible was so countercultural in its day to even include children in the discussion. Let me tell you some of the ways that Neighborhood Bible Church programs to welcome children You can't really program to welcome someone. Can you you can set some processes up But it's really about heart-to-heart connection So we could program things to be a welcoming church and not be a welcoming church But here's some things here's some intentional steps we do This is the first sunday of the month We have a tradition of keeping the children with us the entire time. You know why we are welcoming you into the adult conversation adult conversation is sometimes boring It's sometimes long. It's sometimes hard to keep track of what is this person even talking about? Welcome. (laughs) You are welcome. Parents, let let me just make this really clear. You are welcome to bring your child into service any Sunday. Any and every Sunday. Some of your children need to be stimulated and challenged and grown, and they are hungry for the adult conversation. I would pray, nurture that in them other weeks we have them in here for part of the time and then we dismiss them why do we do that we do that because they are a part of the family they are a part of it and so to come participate in here is a benefit to the adults it is a benefit to the children children are in training they're not one day going to be the church they are the church right now and so we pay attention to them. But we don't revolve our whole our our whole world around them. I want you to know, children, you are involved in our thinking and planning about community groups, about strategy, about preferences, about budget. You are welcomed into this family. And we do that because there are places in Scripture that that Paul and others write directly to the children. They don't say to the parents, hey, tell the children this. They say, children, and then they begin to talk that presupposes that children were present in adult communal worship so jesus brings a child next to him and it's sort of this object lesson and i think there's at least a couple of messages going on here one is this he pulls a child up and essentially begins to address address the disciples childishness maybe it's an object lesson What's going on right now? You have the truly great one, Jesus, talking about his future humiliation. He is about to humble himself and die on a cross willingly. In the very same breath of that, you have the disciples, the truly lowly, discussing their itty-bitty greatness. This is something akin to being at Yosemite and marveling at all the rocks, and you feel frustrated that there's attention being taken away, so you're going around saying, hey, look at this amazing rock. Look, look here. The comparison is, are you kidding me? Like, why are you doing that? Jesus, the truly great one, is humbling himself. The truly lowly, the created beings, the trainees, who were just doing ineffective ministry, are discussing whose. Greater. Families, do we see this going on in our homes? Yeah. Workers, does this go on in a place of business? Yeah. Some of you work in schools, some of you not so willingly attend schools. Does this go on in the schools? Absolutely. I can't really think of a place where this doesn't go on. This is pervasive in all areas of our society. Jesus is showing it's childish to be arguing about this. He's also saying this, true greatness is not what you think it is. In fact, it's probably exactly opposite and upside down of how you think. The disciples are doing exactly what comes natural to all of us. They are pushing and striving their way to the front of the line. Now, some of you do that with sheer physicalness. You watch kindergartners and some just shove their way up. Some of you, God didn't gift with brawn, but he's given you an amazing brain. And you're more conniving, you're more subtle, you bide your time. But there is something born in us that is prideful, that wants our needs in front of other people's needs. That's why it's commanded in the scripture to put other people's needs first, because it doesn't come natural to any of us. So this is pride at work. Do you know that sometimes a certain kind of sickness leaves you vulnerable to other kinds of sickness? Isn't that true in our bodies? If we have a weakened immune system, pride is a little bit like a spiritual weakened immune system. It puts spiritual blinders on us and keeps us actually from seeing other kinds of sickness in us. One of the things that blinds us to most is our own pride. I think i just jotted this down i don't have this up anywhere but in john 5 44 jesus does something really interesting he links seeking vain glory that is glory from one another getting the praise of other people he links vain glory with ineffective ministry remember one of the things wrong with the church the disciples were just unable to cast out a demon from this desperate dad And here they are, a couple verses later, seeking vain glory, okay? So see these two sicknesses and how they link together? What I've seen over time is this. God will not work where he's not welcome. If you want the glory, here's what God does. He says, okay, and he steps back. You can have that glory. I'm not at work here. And so he just slowly removes himself from that situation. In John 5:44, addressing some overly religious Jewish people, Jesus said these words. Listen carefully. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Your capacity at faith, your capacity to believe is being short-circuited by your desiring vain glory. How could you believe when you sit there and just constantly receive glory from one another? Do me a favor for a second. Keep your eye right over here at this fish tank where the drummer lives, okay? Look there. Everyone look there. Now at the same time, look at this plant. Look at both at the same time. Eh, None of you did it. We cannot look at two things in the same room. In the same way, we cannot go after two masters. There's no way to go in two directions at once. I believe in God. I have faith in God. I want nothing but God's will in my life. I want the praise of man. Do you see how those two are impossible? Those are at odds. So one sickness feeds the other sickness. Now hear me. This is rampant in the local church. This has always been a problem. This probably always will be a problem. This is a sickness to constantly be feeding one another with accolades. When it does this, this is an ugly symptom of pride. Church, myself included, let's not spend so much time on titles and accolades and recommendations of one to another. Who is any of us But former experts at sinning, rampant sinners who are saved by the grace of God. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. Let's revel in that. Paul's point when people tried to make him a celebrity pastor was this. Hey, at a feast, let's celebrate that we all get to eat. Let's not bicker about who did what. Well, I planted this corn. I should get some recognition. Paul's point is, like, let's just celebrate that we're feasting with Christ, that we've been welcomed to the Lord's table. What a fascinating, powerful thing. I just finished a book this summer called Be a Motivational Leader. He writes this, Leroy Imes. He says, praise is what the vain leader seeks and the weak leader is hurt by. The true character of a leader is manifested by how he or she handles praise read through the gospels read through the old testament read through the whole of scripture and see how vain glory and praise heaped on people god directly intervenes at times with that what's the cure the cure is this go after true greatness notice this about the bible the bible does not say that greatness is bad wanting excellence or greatness is not condemned It's not wrong. We are made in God's image. Going after excellence, going after greatness is hardwired into us. Rather, Jesus is redirecting and redefining greatness. There's like an inner GPS that's pointing us to what's great. And the wide road leads to all these other things. And Jesus is correcting it and saying, you want true greatness? Here it is. And he points the way. Greatness comes not from asserting, but by accepting. Think about this. Aren't those who make the the grades and those who who get most and those who get things, those are people who are assertive. Isn't being assertive like this really powerful thing? I'm confident in myself and I'm assertive. You're hired. Maybe not so fast. True greatness is not being assertive. It's, It's by accepting. Think about this. We receive the word of truth. We receive who we are by God himself telling us who we are. We receive our boundaries of what's in or what's out, what's foul or what's fair play by God. Each of us receives our assignment on the team. True greatness comes from accepting not by asserting our will, our wants. Greatness is not being served, but rather serving one another. It is not striving to be the leader, but striving to be like our leader, Jesus. Matthew 23, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Mark 10, Jesus on leadership. Jesus called them to him. And he said, you know how those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Do you hear him fixing the broken GPS? Don't follow your leaders uh, here on this earth. Follow me. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. and Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Let me give you an action step, an immediate action step that will cultivate true greatness. You ready for it? It's not shocking. You've heard it before, but here it is: serve children. Welcome and serve children. I'm not talking about just here at church. Welcome and serve children. Let me give you a couple thoughts. Uh, And by the way, this isn't the only way to cultivate true greatness, but here this is prescribed and modeled in the scriptures, that Jesus welcomes and serves children. Um, One of the things about serving children, which is really good for you, is this. Children are not impressed with your bank account. They are not impressed with the car you drive. They are not impressed with the label on your clothing or how your hair looks. They might be offended at how you smell. They can pick up on those things. But otherwise, they're not impressed with that. If you walk in and say, hey, I'm the VP of a worldwide company, they go, cool, can I have a graham cracker? Like, they don't care. Let me, let me tell you, this is really good for your ego. Just serving and being around children is really good for, for your ego. You know why else it's good to serve children? Because they will take for granted that you're watching them, that you're caring for them, and they will rarely thank you. Kids just expect to be watched. If I say, mom and dad are going out tonight, what do my kids say? Who's watching us? They don't say, Can I put in a formal request? Could someone care for us? I tend to get hungry every few hours or every few minutes, and I forget that I ate already, and I have poo poo problems, and I have all these other things. I have needs. Who's gonna care for us? They assume someone's going to care for them. You know what? That means they're not profusely going, thank you so much. You're such a kind adult. I just I just want to thank you for being such a good They don't do that! They take it for granted. Hear me, this is a great thing. This is a great thing for your ego. This is a great thing to just serve. And if you make them dinner, they can't pay you back by making you dinner. Depending on your kid, you don't want them making your dinner. Why? That makes for more work after they make you dinner. Serve children. It will grow you into a truly great person. Finally, you are part of a church family that is filled with children. We love that. We love that children are here. Many of our children fit in a very broad, sort of easy to manage, like, yeah, generally this all works for kids. We have several outliers that just go, man, that doesn't work for my child. We don't say, we're not a church that says, well, sorry, we have this set program and if you don't fit the box, you don't fit. We have just had over the years exceptionally servant-hearted people that have basically provided children's ministry and children's care one-on-one because that child doesn't fit with sort of the broad spectrum of of kids. We welcome children here, and your church is asking you to to serve with children. So for the sake of of, of your own discipleship, and even for the sake of the, the sheer opportunities that are around us, Welcome children in Jesus' name. Now, get outside of children for a second. Any marginalized, forgotten, or overlooked person that you ever welcome into your home or life is Jesus-like and is cause for celebration. You know what you get bonus points in heaven for? Is if they couldn't possibly invite you back to their own barbecue. If they couldn't possibly uh, come and help you rake leaves in your yard. If they didn't have any capacity to pay you back whatsoever and what you get bonus bonus points for Is if you keep your mouth shut about it and you just do it as a worship act of god That's a picture of the kingdom You want true reward you want true riches You want to lay your head on the pillow at night truly pleased and happy? that's the path to happiness That's what jesus modeled for us. That's what jesus told us to do. All right quickly sickness number four is rivalry and tribalism. I mean, these guys just bang, 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 one after the other. There are these six symptoms going on that reveal sin in our life. And Jesus, using object lessons and words written down for us, prescribes the cure. Sickness 4 is rivalry and tribalism. Verse 49 John answered, Remember John? I mean, one of the close ones. He was just on the Mount of Transfiguration. John answered, Master. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, do you see the irony that Luke is trying to capture? A few verses earlier, who were the guys who could not cast out a demon in a child in Jesus' name? These guys, the disciples. Now, who is it that is now calling out someone else, not hearsay, they saw this person. It was firsthand information. They saw them successfully casting out demons in Jesus' name. Same guys. Now, why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon in the child a few verses earlier? Big, broad answer is this. They were trainees. They're brand new at this. If you've ever taken on a job and you've been trained on how to do something, you're not told once and they say, go to it. You're trained. And there is a period where you are told, retold, told some more, and they say, hey, remember that giant sign on the wall? Do that. Not only that, you're modeled and followed up with. These guys were trainees. Of course they couldn't do it all. But what's curious is, if you are a trainee on the job, and you can't do your job right, and then you point to someone else who's actually doing the job and try to stop them, you might be prideful. Just a little tip. If that's you, you might be prideful. The trainees are needing more training. As you follow Jesus as a laborer through this life, it will get downright kooky who opposes you. It will get this crazy, the naysayers that will come after you will be crazy town, and it will be from within the Christian community. You stay close to the voice of Jesus, you do the things Jesus calls you to do, it actually upsets the status quo of many Christians. The light of that actually causes some weird naysayers to come out of the woodworks. Rivalry is rampant in the broad Christian community, and it is damaging the name of Jesus Christ. The human heart's ability to creatively come up with ways to divide and then condemn whole groups of people is really pretty psychotic. Here's the rivalry and tribalism mix-and-match game. Um, When you look at what kind of tribalism is there, there's ethnic, gender, generational tribalism. There's theological and political tribalism. There's community and class tribalism. There's education and dietary tribalism, particularly in our area, dietary, right? Now, if you combine these, you form an even smaller tribe. So this isn't true of me, clearly. But if you were to identify yourself, I'm an urban Asian male with a master's degree who is reformed, a Democrat, and a vegan. What you might have is someone who is listening to you nodding like this, and then they go, what? You're vegan? I can't believe that. I shun you. And because of this one little last title, they have whittled their circle down into their tiny little tribe of truth, and no matter what labels you put on, they eventually are going to find something as a reason to disconnect with you. This is rampant in the Christian community. Guard against it. Jesus says, if they're not against us, they are for us. Now, should we draw and defend lines? Yes or no? Yes, there is good and evil Every time a shooter comes out in the news Good and evil suddenly pop back up into the cultural discussion All of a sudden we're pretty crystal clear on who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, right? There is good and evil. There are true and false gospels These are things you put into a doctrinal statement of a church We say there's a few hills that are worth dying on And and the rest are disputable matters Their preferences, their styles, their non-salvation issues Many, many things. We can't both be right, but we're not really sure who's right. You can make a strong argument for and against this biblically. Go and read Romans 14, the entire chapter, to figure out how are you supposed to deal with disputable matters. And then be on the lookout for people who want to constantly divide over non-disputable matters. Taking side things and making them the main things. Christians, what if we just lived humbly as a disciple who is still in the process of maturing, who doesn't have it all figured out, instead of someone who is, who is proudly at the finish line, proudly at the top of the mountain and just calling out everything else around them. Here is the cure. The cure is to turn in your hall monitor badge. Who's a hall monitor? It's the one who's been given a little bit of amount of authority they've been given an official title. What do they do with that? They run rampant with it. They make life miserable for people. They overreach. They overstep their bounds. They overstep their knowledge and skill set. That's a lot of what is going on. Hear me, Dave included. You are not the coach. You don't have all wisdom. You are not on the team to to look at everyone else. In fact, obnoxious ministry tattletale troll is not a title of a church person. That's not in the scripture. It's not a spiritual gift. So lay it down. I want to tell you that my time with Foster the Bay over these last few years has been an incredible sort of convergence of seeing these four things come together in a really positive way. So what's wrong with the church? These four things, not all that's wrong with the church, but these four things tend to be called out as wrong. Let me say that I've had a front row seat to effective ministry at Foster the Bay. God has continued to bless and bless and bless some more. And as we see Foster the Bay again this summer expand to the sixth county of our 11 counties, there's some exciting things happening up north. We have, just, we have just seen God's favor in this moving forward. How about people who don't heed the word of Jesus? Let me tell you, I've been there from the very beginning. I'm in the inner core of directing Foster the Bay. And we are an organization that doesn't suit God's word to our mission. We suit our mission to God's word. And where God's word has said, nope, that's a boundary. You can't go over there. We just, we call that out and we say it. We have had strong Loving, godly arguments around the scriptures and around what are we allowed to do, what's a disputable matter, and what is something we put our foot down and say, no, this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. We are heeding the word of God, not perfectly, but I've seen it in a really powerful way. How about pride? I'll tell you what, with Foster Bay, something that's been powerful is I get to see humble service with little regard or recognition there's very little care about what other titles we bring to that. In fact, we are often surprised as I meet people from around the Bay Area that are a part of the team now, I'm surprised at their role because that's not what we lead with. That's not a, a huge important thing. And finally, watching denominational and tribal lines not only crossed but joining together for the glory of God has been a really powerful and profound thing. All in the context, watch this, of welcoming Jesus, welcoming children in Jesus' name. I just sat here and pondered these four things that are wrong. And a part of why I so enjoy my role with Foster the Bay is because I get to see these things working in some really tangible ways. The last thing I want to do this morning is this. Jesus diagnoses the sickness. He prescribes the cure, but he also offers himself as the medicine. Last week, I gave you two others. The titles of Jesus, the way he identifies himself, speaks directly to our pains. So, to those who are obsessed with first place, the prideful, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Great One who came as the suffering servant. He lays down not only his rightful greatness, but he lays down his life so that the sinner can live. And to those who were proudly wagging their head and finger at him from below him on the cross and next to him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was humble to the end. To those trapped on their tiny tribal island who are cut off from the wide community of Christians around this world and this valley, God is the good shepherd who gathers people from all backgrounds Here's my advice to you. Listen to the voice of Jesus. The only way to listen to the voice of anyone is to stay close to them. If you're close to them and dialed in, you'll start, to, you'll start to not be hall monitor person anymore. We had a phrase growing up in our house, worry about yourself. Anyone ever hear some variation of that? I had three brothers. You know what brothers do? They worry about their brothers. You know what I should have been doing? Worrying about myself. Why? Because I've got tons of myself to worry about. My mom would say it incessantly, worry about yourself. Tattling is still a rampant thing in the family of God. You know what the father says? Worry about yourself. I'm the dad. I've got this. That's my son. That's my daughter. I didn't make you home hall monitor. Jesus does this in the past. He does it today. He is still using what is right in front of our faces to show us our sickness and show us the path out. Jesus said, hey, child, come over here. I want to to have you sit up next to me for a second. Jesus uses what's right around us, and he prescribes how to follow close and live the kingdom way. We're going to celebrate communion this morning as a church family. And in celebrating communion, again, our tradition is we typically do this for sure, at least on the third Sunday of each month, and then at various other times as we see fit. In celebrating communion, we are doing a couple things that are highlighted in our text today. Number one is this. We are keeping the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at the very center of our conversation. Remember what happened on the transfiguration? We know what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about because the scriptures tell us they were talking about the cross because it's not only central to their conversation, it's central to world history. Jesus comes down from the cross. He gathers his disciples. He wows the crowds with with an exorcism of a child freeing a child from darkness. He pulls the disciples aside. What's on his lips? The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. What's on his mind and thoughts and lips? The cross. So this morning as we celebrate communion, we're keeping the cross central to our conversation, to our thoughts. But secondly, in possibly more obviously we are welcoming children in a tangible way do you know the bible doesn't have a kid's table for communion there's not the lord's table and the lord's junior table it is the lord's table that we come to and so we are welcoming adults and children alike to this now here's a really important question how old do i have to be to participate in communion what age is the right age? Let me tell you how we've answered that as a church. We give each family and individual the freedom to participate or not participate depending on how God has laid on your conscience. We let the Holy Spirit teach on this matter. Now let's remember what the Holy Spirit has already taught us. Let me give you 3 things and then you can you can decide. Number one is that Jesus instructed his committed followers to do this. So communion is for Christians. He also, uh, this is done to remind us of all that Jesus did to show us how much he loves us. So communion is to remember and think on Jesus' sacrifice. And lastly, we're told in scripture this, we are to examine ourselves before participating. So what is the right age? I don't think there is a right age. I think, there's a, I think there's a spiritual life or death. I think there's a maturity to understand what this is about and what's going on. And so parents, what I would say to you is this. I give you freedom to be the, the, the local pastor in your local flock, which is your family, and guide and lead and direct in this as you see fit. The way we'll do this is we're gonna take the elements, we're gonna pass them during this next song, um, and then we're going to let the band go and worship with their families. And so we'll just, we'll just take together. So sometime between when it's passed and when the band gets up to sing the last song, go ahead and celebrate um, communion right there at your seat. Let me pray. Father, thank you for caring for us in our sickness. God, we rejoice in the healing we've already seen and we walk in and we experience on a regular basis. And God, we pray that we would be humble enough to have open hands to see where else we are sick and need a touch from you. I thank you for the tangible presence and picture of grace that communion is. I pray right now that as we celebrate, God, it would be something that would be done in freedom and in joy and in uh, in soberness, God, as we think on what you did. Amen.